everyone. Welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight to today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I'm your host, Brian Lashley. And we are talking today about some of the most interesting aspects of air power, in my opinion, and that is air-to-air combat with the F-15 Eagle. And we're very happy to be joined today by Rick Tolini, uh, who's the author of the new book, Call Sign Cluso, an American fighter pilot in Mr. Reagan's Air Force from Casemate Publishers, who has quite a bit of experience in this area. Uh, Rick, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Well, you tell some really interesting stories in this book, and some of them are very unexpected. So I want to start with one of those unexpected stories. Tell us a little bit about how a goofy pen light from Disneyland really changed your approach to life. Yeah, you might be the first person who asked me that one. So thank you for picking, <laughs> <laughs> picking up on that little tidbit in there. Well, it's a you know this is a life story. It's not just a aviation and com- combat story, and it and it moves through things, small little things that sometimes have an impact over the course of a lifetime. So the goofy pen light was a souvenir from a Disneyland trip that I that I somehow left in a Texaco station on the way home. And it was at that age, young age, I maybe I was about six years old. It was rather traumatic that I'd lost my one single favorite souvenir from the trip. And so it was that, and I, I think I tied it into something that happened at pilot training when I also lost my flight cap and had to walk in without, not in proper uniform to try to find a, buy a new one. And so I think it developed in me this little characteristic of just checking things all the time. Just make, oh, make sure I have this, make sure I have that. So maybe not to the point of psychotic, but <laughs> it's, it's, you know, just a human trait. But I found later as I became a fighter pilot and I had to really organize myself in a way to be able to execute quickly that just some of those, you know, traits that I had grown to have probably had a benefit to me somehow. So it's kind of like a mental checklist, but it's weird because my mental checklist is not in order. It's like this checklist that just keeps skipping around, but eventually I get through everything. I reprioritize what's important at the time. And that's probably, air combat is probably the most fluid combat environment out there, I would say, air-to-air combat. And I'm not the only one that have those skills, obviously, but people who have some uniqueness to their approach to flying, I think they tend to excel at it. You know, this is one of the few books I've read from an OTS grad. So you're not United States Air Force Academy. You're not ROTC. Uh, That being said, you still did already have a lot of flight time. Uh, But how do you compare your 90-day wonder experience to, you know, some of the guys you flew with who were ROTC and USAFA grads? Yeah, you know, I can't compare it because I didn't do that. I just knew after 90 days, I thought, I'm glad I didn't have to do four years of this. (laughs) So so I think I made the right choice uh, for me anyway. I never noticed that. Maybe at senior leadership levels, kind of people knew who the Zoomies or the Academy grads were and stuff. And to me, it was just the way I got my commission and it was the way I had an opportunity to fly. But I would say one thing that was unique about that time and what I, what I said in the book, the subtitle in Mr. Reagan's Air Force or President Reagan's Air Force, is this was really a cross-section of America that the military was building up again and they were out looking for people. And so that's really important 
in this air superiority community is that you have this unique conglomeration of a lot of different skill sets and different experiences. And if you only get maybe one source, commissioning source, or one path to that uh, career or that profession, I, I think maybe you don't get as much out of it. So so from that point of view, I, I just think it was a benefit that we had all three of those sources of different pilots coming into the Air Force. Yeah, I think this idea of different paths is an interesting one that comes up repeatedly in your book about you know how things could have gone slightly differently and, and led to very different outcomes. And that's true, too, of it's not like you went in knowing you wanted to be an Eagle driver. You know, you kind of went through these. Yeah. yeah. Could you tell us a little <laughs> bit about that and how you changed your mind about what you wanted to fly and, and what you wanted to do? Yeah. My career goals from a young age were to be a pilot. And the idea of that was to be a commercial airline pilot. Cause you know, I, my family just really didn't have a strong military background or history to it. And so that was what I was searching for or that's what my intent was through college and getting my civilian flight experience. But it was meeting a, a friend, <laughs> a California hippie like me, uh, who went to pilot, was going to pilot training that got me thinking, oh, first of all, maybe the Air Force is a good path. And then as I got into pilot training and started flying little jets that were maneuverable, it was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And so it kind of moved me out of that airline path. And then it was just a matter of which airplane do I think I want to fly. Which is interesting because you mentioned in the book that you wanted to fly the, the F-111. And it was actually on a, uh, a cross country with Bob Nunley, who mentioned uh, that Clovis, New Mexico, as you were flying over that, uh, was where the F-111s uh, were. But I'll note that, that Bob failed to mention that Holloman was also an Eagle base. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but you know uh clovis i don't know if you've ever been to clovis but from the air there was nothing there <laughs> so, <laughs> holloman was my first duty station so i'm i'm oh, well yeah. acquainted with new mexico yeah yeah well can you describe for us a little bit about what it was like to fly the f-15 for the first time was that an interesting experience yeah i would say it was uh it was a bit intimidating um even with all my flight experience it was just such a quantum leap in complexity it was it's just it's a really big fighter and i didn't realize that until i think it might have been on my first or second flight we taxied up getting ready to take off next to an f4 and i always thought the f4 was a really big fighter but it just looked tiny <laughs> next to us <laughs> and so here i am in the front seat of this huge with a whole bunch of fighter behind me and so i I think through the first month or two of training, it was it was getting over that. But just like anything else, pretty soon the airplane, you just become part of the airplane. And that's just natural after a while. So I did an entire dissertation on the creation of Red Flag and how it changed the Air Force's way of war. And I think I might have mentioned Cote Thunder one time in the book. So can you tell us a little bit about that particular exercise and, and how it was similar and at the same time different from Red Flag? Well, Cote Thunder was a flag exercise. It wasn't called Red Flag. There were several flag exercises, maple flag, red flag, and things like that. And Cope Thunder was the Western Pacific or the Pacific Air Force's flag exercise. And so so the basis of the idea behind it was the same. Get you those first 10 as close as possible 
feels like combat type missions, since that's where people would usually fail or get shot down was in the first 10 missions. So, so the focus of it or intent of it was the same as Red Flag. I would say the big difference was it was huge compared to Red Flags. Uh, I was really surprised when my first assignment was at Kadena. And then I went from Kadena to Eglin, where we started doing red flags. And it's like, is this all we have here? You know, it's like, is this all the people that are going to show up? Because literally, we had like 60, 80 airplane packages sometimes. And uh, the airspace was different. I think it was a little bit smaller. And it tended to funnel into the, uh, the targeting range. And so literally, you'd have these huge Battle of Britain furballs. They look like like gnats on a summer night <laughs> and you just kind of stayed out of the way and it was it was very complex uh, i think we had a lot more freedom to do what we needed to do to train the way we wanted to train and all the flag exercises were important and they all had benefit but i had never experienced anything ever again like cope thunder uh, even when it moved up to alaska after Clark Air Base closed, it was it w- they never got as big as they were during the eighties in the in the Pacific, and and I mentioned in the book I think that what we did for the Desert Storm combat plans, the enormity of it, the complexity of it, the number of airplanes and packages, very similar to Cope Thunder. So for our for myself and our guys in my unit that had Kadena. PACAF experience at Cope Thunder, the combat, big, large combat missions were like, okay, yeah, we can do this. Done it before. Well, speaking of planning for Desert Storm, let's go ahead and jump into some of that. I I really think, you know, some of the books out there, the planning phase of Desert Storm has gotten as much attention as the operation itself. And, And you talk about that quite a bit. And you had some very interesting planning challenges to, to deal with, including, some interactions with Buster Glosson. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you went about planning your your strike sorties and some of the challenges you faced and how you solved those problems? Yeah, I, I assume you're alluding to our manning issues. The way you train on a day-to-day basis, peacetime, you can put out a lot of sorties over a short period of time. But for the Eagles, for the F-15Cs, we were tasked 24 hours a day. Not all the air assets did that. Like you had your daytime strike assets, you had your nighttime strike assets, but they wanted a lot of eagles out there protecting those assets 24 hours a day. That's a huge impact both on aircraft availability, but more so on pilot availability because you're just not manned at that ratio of pilots per available aircraft to run high tempo 24 hour ops. And they wouldn't let us bring in more pilots, even though I kept asking for more. So what I did was we expanded the time that the the Eagles would be in the air. And so working with Riyadh, which was the planning cell, I started optimizing. I'll go, hey, make our cap times longer. And it sounds counterintuitive. It's like, you want to be in the air longer? It's like, yeah. You know, we had some spares in case we engage somebody, they can send them out. But that gave more time for maintenance to turn the airplanes around and get them fueled and rearmed. And that opened up more sorties, more aircraft availability. Then the problem was we didn't have enough pilots to fill them all. So I go, okay, I'm going to take my 24-hour day of scheduling and make it an 18-hour day. And what that meant was you would fly maybe in the morning, let's say an 0600 cap time mission time, and you would fly that, and then your day would roll over at 
the 18 hour point. So the next day you were six hours earlier on a midnight cap. And then the next day you were six hours earlier on an 1800 or a 6 p.m. cap or mission or whatever. And when I did that, I was able to fill all the, all the flights and also get access to more missions, the more important missions like the strike missions, the force protection missions, uh, offensive counter air. And that's what Riyadh really needed Eagles to be able to do. So it just kind of opened up the playbook for us. And we got mission commander positions for a lot of those missions that we ended up engaging Iraqi aircraft on in the first three, day, first three days. But the circadian rhythm part of that was horrendous. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I also mentioned how important our flight surgeon was uh, in handing out uh, legal drugs uh, to keep us ready to go. So before we get to the actual MIG engagements on the, the first three days of, of Desert Storm, I want to step back a little bit. And you got to participate in the Red Eagles program. Uh, and for oh, yeah. those listeners who don't know what that is, that was where uh, a select group of American pilots actually got to fly against MIGs out at the Nellis Rangers that the United States has obtained through various means. And so you, you got to do that. Can you elaborate a, a little bit on what that was like flying against uh, a MIG uh, in a training environment? Well, that was eye-opening because we didn't know what we were doing when we got there. It was like really top secret. It's not anymore. It's been unclassified. But you kind of thought maybe, what's, what are we going to see when we go out there? And nobody would tell us. And then literally you would join up with this airplane and look over and go, oh, that's a MiG-21 fish bed. <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> and it was. And it was a really good experience. It, it was only a couple missions. For me, but the idea of having buck fever the first time you meet an enemy in combat, you don't you don't want that to happen, and so it, you kind of desensitize you to that idea that you're going to meet up with a strange airplane that you've never seen before, and, and maybe you might know what its flight characteristics are, but to actually fight against it, you know, you learn more. So so that was a big benefit. Yeah, I remember uh, former chief of staff of the Air Force, John Jumper, talking about merging with a MiG-21 at, at Red Eagles and, and him saying, why can't I think? Because uh, he was just so enamored with the fact that he had just merged with a, a MiG-21. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, you got to get over that pretty quick. <laughs> so between Cope Thunder, uh, the Red Eagles, WIC, and Red Flag, and all the home station training, where do you think you learned the most? Well, they're all important, so it's kind of like an all-of-the-above answer. Uh, WESIP also uh, was one of those, the missile program to shoot live missiles. And I, I got an opportunity to shoot maybe 11 or 12 missiles, which was a little bit unusual, <laughs> that number, before I ever went to war. And so just like all those others, that's important that you can see live ordnance going off your airplane. I, I would have to say the the flag exercises and Cope Thunder from a single continuity point of view were probably, I wouldn't want to say anything was the most important, but overall that had probably the best combat value to it. But it was really all of our training that we did. And there were other exercises besides those, but the conglomeration of all those training opportunities, as much as they were and as often as they were really prepared, a lot of us to, to be ready to go. So moving from that training environment into actual 
wartime combat. Let's talk about Desert Storm a little bit. And that narrative of the first night was really eye-opening for me. There's so much in there, uh, in the way that you tell that story, that was news to me that I found really surprising and interesting. Can you give us a narrative of that first night from your perspective? I guess, let me ask you, what was it that you found surprising or the... All of the, well, what struck me as so harrowing is all the lights off and the, the kind of signals that you would give each other with the lights and, and just trying to maintain that secrecy and to not be detected, uh, but also avoiding friendly fire incidents once engagement started. Like that just seems so difficult. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's good to point those things out because it, it was new for us too. Uh, we never really trained. Uh, we knew the first mission was going to be at night at what time it was going to. We knew that for months ahead of time. And we knew we were the some of the very first uh, fighters to go across the border there at the start of the war. And so we had trained a lot at night. We had to be out at night anyway during Desert Shield to protect the high value assets, the AWACS and the RC-135. So we used that time. I was the weapons officer the tactics and training officer for the squadron. So I knew what we we're going to do. So it's like, hey guys, let's get good at this and get good at it to where, you know, how we're going to keep track of each other, how we're going to maintain our formations. Because the the fighting part we knew how to do. Some of the unusual aspects of night fighting we had to get better at. And so we had time to do that. Yeah. So that that was totally different for us. And then also the uniqueness of the specific tactics that night where they sent in F-117s and F-15Es and EF-111s totally unprotected. You were the first ones. <laughs> Surprise, we're here. And it was like, wow, that's different. And then then we were on a pure fighter sweep, which was which was a very unusual mission. It's a It's a mission, but normally we're protecting somebody. But this one was, hey, go in there and shoot down anybody that shows up. And that's what we tried to do. Yeah, well, go ahead and talk us through those MIG engagements because they're they're pretty fascinating. I'd, I'd love to just kind of hear your. I, I know they're a long story. Yeah, well, it's in the book, so so I'll, I'll kind of condense it a little bit. But uh, it was around O three hundred, and the the moniker in the Air Force at the time, and I'm not sure it still is, but <laughs> was flexibility is the key to air power, and that was in effect that night because they pushed us forward 15 minutes early because they they realized the Iraqis had been alerted to the attacks and they were afraid of some of our early aircraft, the first aircraft being intercepted. And so it totally threw off our formation and our timing, but we just went and we kind of made up for it. We were supposed to be a eight ship wall of F-15s in the Western sector of Iraq. In the center was a Bitburg four ship. And then to the East, I think was a Langley first fighter wing eight ship. So it was supposed to be 20 F-15s sweeping through Iraq. Well, what happened was my four ship was totally first because we got pushed really early. And then my second four ship led by Cheese Grader, Rob Grader, uh, they were they were 50 or 60 miles behind us. They were supposed to be with us, but it worked out uh, the timing, but it was really busy. And since they pushed us early, all the friendly aircraft that were supposed to be out were in front of us. And so we were really worried to make sure that we don't engage a friendly aircraft. And along the way, we'd see see guys lock them up. They would kind of turn away. And then we just picked up a target kind of coming from in vicinity of the southwest Baghdad area. I found them on my radar about the same time my number three, uh, uh, John J.B. Kelk, found him. 
the target was on his side of the formation and his area responsibility. So I just say, you got it. It's a pretty long story how that engagement didn't go quite uh, as confidently as we'd like, but he took shots, took one shot, and it took down Iraqi MiG-29 Fulcrum. And that was the first kill of the war. We didn't really know he'd shot somebody down at the time just because there was a lot of stuff going on, lights and flashes and AAA and SAMs going off, but we thought he had. And then we reorganized our flight. And then the timing worked out for Cheese and the other four ship running to the west of us that they jumped a couple F-1 Mirages coming out of Medias' airfield. I don't think those guys knew what hit them. <laughs> and Cheese took one down with a with an AIM-7, the leader, and then his wingman hit the ground. We don't know why Cheese got credit for that one. You, if you ask the F-15E and the EF-111 guys, they might disagree. But And then most of the night was their guys were running away. So we just kind of reorganized, flew out, and that was the end of the first night. So we got three aerial victories before anybody else, I think, even really crossed the border. And that's just the way the fog of war is how things happen sometimes. Yeah, a- as you mentioned, a lot of the literature says that Tater Tate's first fighter wing F-15 engagement was the, the first one, but you guys had actually downed three aircraft before he takes his shot that night. Yeah, I think CNN said that, but the Air Force corrected it. So <laughs> so go ahead and uh, now talk about the engagement that occurs on the, the 19th of January. Yeah, that was my engagement with my wingman. My, it was my flight, my four ships, same guys that went out on the first night. And it was really a, not a mission that was supposed to happen. It was kind of added very late. We Our early morning mission had been scrubbed for weather, and we came back, and my friend was in the planning cell at Riyadh, and he called me and said, hey, Clouseau, we need four eagles to go protect some scud hunters. They were going to send some guys looking for scuds. And I got, we're the only guys available, so I asked our maintenance if they could get the jets ready, and they did. And so we blasted out, and we just expected to hang out wait for these other guys to show up that we're going to protect. And next thing you know, the AWAC says, hey, we got Iraqi fighters heading south and they're chasing a Navy package because the Navy package had already come through and they were on their way out. And so it's like, well, we're here doing nothing. So they told us to commit on that. And uh, we saw the Iraqis, two flights of Iraqi fighters. Uh, they were identified by the AWACS. Not all of them were correctly identified, but they were definitely Iraqi fighters. And they were coming south, and so we just cut them off so they couldn't catch the Navy package. And uh, I did hear the Navy guys were very appreciative of that <laughs> recently. So And so as we got closer to them, uh, the lead group of fighters, which turned out to be MiG-29s, they turned away. And it looked very much like a tactic that we'd been briefed on that we had trained against against our own like ad, um, aggressor adversaries. It was kind of a Russian type of Soviet type of tactic. And so it looked like, oh, okay, seen this before. Where's the next guys? And we picked up the next two ship coming south. They, they thought we'd go after the decoy and then they could kind of outflank us. And so the two guys coming south were MiG-25 Foxbats. And they were very low and they were very, very fast. Both me and my number three, JB, same JB Kelk, we had them locked up and we were going to shoot them at longer range, BVR, beyond visual range with our AIM-7s. And they did a very effective and very unexpected radar missile defense maneuver. I won't go into the details of 
how they did that. <laughs> but both our radars broke locked and we had nothing. And then uh, I told Cherry Pitts, Larry Pitts, my wingman to look low. And I looked low too. And that's how we defeated those maneuvers when we trained against them. You just wait till the guy reappears on your radar and then you retarget him. And sure enough, we did that, but we couldn't get shots in the face prior to us reaching a merge. And so we entered into a very high speed, high G, low altitude dogfight, which nobody really expected dogfights. Everybody said dogfighting days are over. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, here we go. And it turned out one of the fox bats went south out of the fight. And so it was just me and Cherry in a two versus one situation and that's optimum for us and cherry was shooting missiles but none of his missiles were hitting the guy because he was doing very effective uh defensive countermeasures and uh i ended up shooting a missile also but eventually one of cherry's shots get there gets there and the guy uh ejects out of his fox bat. cherry saw him eject and as we're coming around the circle really just the plan to leave my radar it's in an automatic acquisition mode and it grabs the other fox bat coming back into the fight. Uh, the AWACS told us he was coming back in. I go, yeah, there he is. And he, he kind of flies right in front of me. I just roll out right behind him. And then it was kind of the same kind of thing of, first of all, not knowing if he was a Foxbat, if he was one of my other flight members, if he was a Navy Tomcat, because they'd been in the area. So I went through a long iteration, and I think it's on YouTube, and I wish it wasn't still <laughs> long iteration of telling everybody to come out of burner because the the aircraft in front of me was in afterburners but i had actually figured out what he was before i got those replies so, yeah that's a box pat and so i started shooting had had a couple missile problems again because he was defending uh effectively but my second aim seven got to him and just really just blew him up into a million pieces and then that was the let's let's get the hell out of here <laughs> time uh because you don't want to be anywhere near missiles and flares and things blowing up because everybody's attention goes that way and you don't know who else is going to show up to the fight learn that at cope thunder <laughs> so it's like get out of the fight as quick as you can and uh we managed to get back very low on gas but we got back to a tanker Past a Iraqi Mirage F1 on the way back to the tanker, just go. I'm I'm gonna let you go, and uh, we made it home. So so it was it was pretty thrilling, exciting, and stressful <laughs> dogfight, but the outcome was was good. Two things that jumped out at me in the book, kind of counter to the narrative of of what I had read in the past, and as you mentioned, seen on YouTube, is that the the story is that you said everyone out of burners uh, and then took the shot, but you went ahead and corrected the narrative a little bit there by saying that not only did you say that, but you had kind of ID'd him. You were looking at him going, okay, you know, he's got got the pylons here. None of our guys have those. It's clearly a MiG-25. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing that really stood out for me is, you know, when you, when you talk about the, the PK rates of, of missiles, and I got to admit, I was, I was kind of laughing out loud at, at Cherry taking all these shots. You said he looked like a Roman candle out there, yeah. but you know, I, I think the general public tends to think that, you know, you fire a missile and it's like a laser, it's like Star Wars, it hits the target, but that is not at all the case. Uh, and you guys kind of, I guess, inadvertently proved the, the, the skills necessary for dogfighting because not, not all of your missiles are, are going to find their target for various reasons. 
Yeah. First thing on the ID is like, I, I'm not sure the out of burner call ever would have been a hundred percent good way to do it. So it just happened to come out of my mouth. Uh, but, you know, intelligence and recce of what airplanes look like and their features, it paid off, you know, all the times in our in our briefs and stuff. What did, what is this airplane? You know, what does it carry? So that paid off. And then, yeah, the missiles, we had a big problem with missile motors not firing, especially for the AIM-7. And they figured that out what that was. But that was part of the problem is sometimes a missile just came off and the motor didn't fire. So it, was, it wasn't getting there anyway. It just becomes a bomb. And then the dynamics of, of a combat mission, especially at low altitude, going very fast against a larger fighter-sized target, especially in the, in the stern, in a rear shot, where there's not a lot of vital parts, you know, uh, it's harder to take down an airplane, even if the missile gets there. So we observed that. And when I, when I was training guys in the simulator and they would, our simulator missile simulations are really good. They, they put in all these kind of factors of this guy is not, he's going to keep flying. And, uh, and all the pilots go, oh no, that was a good, it's like, that's not the way it really works. (laughs) You don't want to be surprised. And then, you know, doing the WESIP and all the missile firing practice and training, you get to see and expect when a missile is probably going to be effective versus, uh, uh, no, this one might not work. So, so once again, it was all that stuff came together in a very short time, in a few minutes over, over Iraq. Yeah. That's one thing that comes across really strongly in, in your telling of it is how all these different elements come together really well. And, and the communication with the team and with AWACS and between the rest of the, the fighters. And I just wondered if you had any kind of insight about what you thought were the most important elements that kind of lead to success in that air superiority realm in this, if there's any particular aspects that stand out to you. Well, it, it goes back to, and I, I tried to relate that in my book about my initial, my first squadron was the 12th fighter squadron, Dirty Dozen, and they had really culture of really high standards in that squadron. So that's where it starts. I mean, everybody's going to get some exposure to the same level of training, but it's like, what do you do with that opportunity and what standards do you set for yourself and for others in the unit and you hold each other accountable? I gave a speech a few years ago and they wanted to hear the war story. I go, I'm not talking about that. I'm going to talk about a culture of excellence and how you grow that. And I, I use the New England Patriots as an example. It's like, you know, I hate those guys, but they're always good. <laughs> they're always really good. And so there's a reason for that. And so that's part of it is when you're in those combat units and it's not just an aviation or a fighter uh, pilot combat, unit. it can be anything or any level of, profession is that when the organization uh, develops this culture of excellence and it continues on even after people come and go then you're gonna you're gonna reach that at the critical times from a training perspective it was really hard for me to quantify it because we were just doing it we were training but I did know other some units trained differently than others and some emphasize things differently than others. And it goes back to like the Cope Thunders and the complexity and the size. And it was something that I didn't even come to my consciousness until a few years ago while I was trying to get guys in the flight simulator to elevate themselves a little more um, because I had just seen some degradation in this stuff in the, in the Air Force and in the F-15 community. And so what I told them was you need to reach a level of intuitive expertise is the is what I coined. And then I found out 
I didn't invent that term. I Googled it and it was already out there, but it meant what I what I thought it meant. It was that you can take complex problems like in the air combat environment and you can intuitively apply solutions to them quickly and you get into a tempo ahead of your enemy. That's how you win, both individually and as a unit and obviously as a military. Look at look at Ukraine and Russia. You know, I'm pretty sure the Ukrainians had the tempo <laughs> uh, advantage when they were defending Kiev, and and you saw the results of that. Even a even a smaller force and a less capable force, in a sense, they had the initiative, they had the tempo, and and when you do that, you take the fight to the enemy, then you win. I had I know we're over time, so I don't know if this will stay in, but I had another question I wanted to ask you. Um, one thing that I really found refreshing about this book, you know, Brian and I, we read a lot of pilot memoirs and, and we talk about them and there's certain trends that show up in many of them. Yours really stands out uh, as you discuss kind of the more psychological aspects of being in warfare and being in combat and the violence that goes along with that and some of the after effects. And you talk extensively about how your religious practice has, you know, helped you deal with some of that and, and affected your life. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that and why that's so important to you. Yeah, well, I'm not the only one who feels that way. And others have experienced the aftermath of war, of combat, deadly combat, and even being on the surviving aspect of it. So, you know, PTSD is well known nowadays, and I've never been diagnosed with it. But that idea that you're going to have some after effect of violent activity or traumatic activity, and sometimes not even directly involved in it, but maybe even being on the fringes of it. But at the same time, you have a job to do. So so you have to kind of compartmentalize that. But even in war, you know, not everybody's going to fight at the same level intensity. And I know that surprised me, really surprised me. I just thought we're all going to fight hard. And then I realized, no, not everybody's <laughs> you. But the more leaders you have in the squadron, combat leaders, uh, the more that those guys are going to take the fight to the enemy, they'll bring other people along with them. But the history of warfare is a lot of the contact and the actual fighting takes place over a very small space and time with actually a few number of combatants. And and sometimes even like in World War II, people wouldn't even fire their weapons. They'd they'd be there for the war. They'd be there in that battle, but they would just, you know, uh, didn't want to fire their weapons. So so I I kind of changed my philosophy about training uh, when I came back from Desert Storm and I went back to the to Okinawa to the Dirty Dozen. Is that I really need to prepare these guys for the psychological aspect of war. I can. I can train them what to do. Anybody can train them what to do. But how do you get them to be that kind of guy at the point? You know, how do you get him to be that combat leader who's going to take the fight? And then the second part of that is, how do you deal with it afterwards? <laughs> you know? uh, and so so that was part of my journey. And I, going back to the beginning of the book, the book's about a journey. And this is not just a journey. It's not over. But um but it's really is like, how does life move us through these experiences? And then what do we do with it when we find that? And so mine was my own particular unique one and, uh, and was my path to, to Buddhism, which sounds kind of counterintuitive 
for a, for a uh, a warrior, but actually, no, it's not. But you still have to deal with, um, you know, whatever is in your heart that comes through, both through the the service to your country, the service in combat, uh, but also your service to humanity. And so, and so that really, I was my discovery is that don't hold dark things inside your heart <laughs> and don't, you know, don't try to validate them or justify them, just deal with them. And, uh, and you deal with them in how you live your human life, great value for yourself and for others in the process of your human life. And that's how you deal with it. So, so, uh, hopefully I, I did get some comments from different people. And I think most of them are pretty positive about that aspect from the book, but it was, I've read a lot of aviation stories and and i think i said at the very beginning uh, if i'm going to do this i got to do it my way so so I'm, I'm happy you kind of picked up on that so we're, we're running a little low on time but we've got to ask and i always like to ask this even though it's a little bit of a silly question but what is your favorite airplane to fly and why okay everybody would think it's the f-15 right and but i would have to say a super cub a Piper Super Cub. And that as from the book, you know, that was my first aviation experience. So it would be, and the, the reason is actually that was my first, but the experience of an Eagle and a Super Cub is amazingly the same because it's the only time, the only airplanes I ever flew where I felt I was part of the airplane. And that's the ultimate experience of flying. It's not just transportation. It's when you feel you are part of the airplane. And as you think the airplane moves, I experienced that in the Super Cub. And then later, once I got good enough and I felt comfortable enough, I experienced that in the Eagle. Hey, no, it's, Mike says it's silly, but it's really not because we, we've gotten some, some really different and really surprising answers from, from some of the folks we've interviewed. So I, I think we're going to keep on doing it here. Well, that, that's a, a great way to kind of wrap this up. But before we go, uh, where else can we find more of you online or elsewhere? For the book, I have a Facebook page, and it's called Call Sign Caluso. I do write music and produce music, and so if anybody's interested in my music, it goes by Cluso is the artist's name, K-L-U-S-O. So you can find me on you know, iTunes and Amazon and all that stuff. Fantastic. Brian, where are you at online these days? Uh, so you can find me kind of inter intermittently on Twitter at Brian Lastly, or of course at my website, www.brianlastly.com. Well, I'm also uh, online at wmhankins.com. All of us are online at balloons2drones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Uh, please send us an email or feel free to submit an article to us for submission at balloons2drones.com slash contact. And thank you all, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>